This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. So fun. Uh, I'm Ange. I love that you used Ange. Yay! Yay! Um, I'm Ange, and it's nice to meet you. If we haven't met yet, I would like to meet you afterwards. I try to hang out and be accessible, because this is a journey that we do together. I am not necessarily wired up for public speaking in the sense like, I can't wait to do that. I am wired up for conversation. If you know me in my private life, words are a big piece of my puzzle. (laughs) So I love the conversation, and getting to know you is part of why it is okay to have the courage to come up here and do this. It feels like a conversation. So this morning, we're going to have a conversation about the Jesus effect, and uh, spoiler alert, it is love. The band did a beautiful job of laying that groundwork, and it is totally okay that that spoiler alert happened, because there is so much to be said on this topic. But first, I'd actually just like to start with a picture of love. Because I think when we're going to try to move ourselves in the direction towards something, it is nice to have a clear picture of what that looks like. So I would like you to virtually meet Rachel. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about Rachel's story. This is Rachel Beckwith. And on her ninth birthday, she asked to not receive any gifts. She actually asked if her friends and family would donate to a charity that she had come to greatly value called Charity Water. Any Charity Water fans out there? Are you familiar with that? They're an organization that does a beautiful work of getting clean water to people who have no access to it or have to travel on average three hours a day to get to their water source, which is not even clean. So Rachel got moved to this idea of clean water, and for her ninth birthday, she asked her friends and family if they would help her raise $300 to do this thing with clean water. And they were able to raise $220 on her behalf, which is just the sweetest thing. To me, this is a picture of some of the ways that the next gen is going to lead us. That is such a challenging thing from a nine-year-old. But sadly, three weeks after her ninth birthday, she was killed in a car accident. And the first time I heard this story, ah, it's right there. (laughs) Rachel's legacy, her pastor found out that she hadn't reached her goal and reopened her giving site, and people heard the story and just flooded in. 331 people gave to, to Rachel's giving fund, and they were able to reach the 300 mark that she had wanted to reach, and somewhat beyond. In fact, they raised $1.2 million in Rachel's name. <laughs> that is so fun. And according to Charity Water, that what Rachel was able to do in her legacy at nine years old is provide clean water access to 37,000 people. That is a legacy of a nine-year-old leading the charge. That is a Jesus effect right there. I mean, that is stunning. I also want to introduce you to Warden Burl Kane. And he is the warden for the last 20 years at Angola Prison, which is out in Louisiana. And when he took this job, he took it reluctantly. He said he was actually coerced into it by a dear friend because it was the bloodiest prison in our nation. It had killings about every other day on average. 
And he didn't want that job, not at all. And on top of it, like a good Southern boy, when he got the job, his mama, that's how he referred to her, his mama said, honey, you're going to be held accountable for what you do in that prison. (laughs) And and apparently his response was, yes, ma'am. So he heads into this prison situation, and he, by his own words, it was running him crazy. You talk about an uphill battle. You talk, how do you have a Jesus effect in prison? Well, his way was he brought in a seminary and allowed the inmates to participate in a full-scale Christian seminary. And then they began to be changed by this. And then he began to move the people that were participating in the seminary into different parts of the dormitory to have an effect on those parts of the dormitory. And the latest version, the latest uh, update to this story is obviously the stats have changed entirely. It is a completely different environment. And all of the inmates now have jobs that they do. Because of what this warden did, it ignited a thing that had this this um, momentum that has grown. At Christmas, they give away 6,000 wooden toys that they make inside of their own toy shop. I don't know what you picture of Santa's elves and his toys. Is it Angola prison? <laughs> that picture to me, that picture is beautiful. They repair bikes that have been discarded, and they give away about 1,500 bikes every single Christmas. And they repair wheelchairs, and they send wheelchairs to third world countries. It's about 1,200 wheelchairs every year they send out into the world to ease burden. This is the Jesus effect. I don't know about you, but I'm like half teared up and I have chicken skin and I know these stories. (laughs) This is the Jesus effect. This is the thing we all resonate with. I don't know if you feel called to do some kind of prison uh, ministry. I don't know if you're called to next gen. I don't know if these stories resonate with you because of the context they are, but I know that they resonate with you. Because this thing is inside of us. This desire to have an effect. This desire to make life just a smidge easier for other people. This desire to leave a legacy. It is in us. It resonates with all of us, people of faith and not people of faith. It resonates with us because it's part of our design. We want to have an effect. Jesus is the one we want to talk about, the Jesus effect specifically. Jesus lived over 2,000 years ago, and his legacy was one of hope, of radical acceptance, and of love. People inside of our faith and outside of our faith recognize the Jesus character from history as being radically loving and radically accepting. We want the Jesus effect going to get uncomfortable for just a second and call out the elephant in the room. If you pause and you think about the overarching Christian movement, the way that Christians are known right now in our little slice of history, we're not known for the Jesus effect, are we? No. We're actually, if you like pull up and think about what your friends who are outside of our faith would say about Christians, We are considered bigotry, bigoted, backwards thinking, judgmental. We fight amongst ourselves. Disunity, we're known for disunity, inflicting pain, making people feel less than, trying to fix people. 
what has happened? This is the Jesus character who started this movement. And then this is what we're struggling with right now. And I would say to you, we've missed something. We've missed something. And I know you've heard plenty of talks on love, love, love. Like, we should be loving. Pull up your bootstraps. Find a way to love people that you can't stand. Like, it's, we, (laughs) we know the answer. Like, we know the answer. Love is the answer. Or you're in church, and Jesus is always the right answer. (laughs) We know the answer. But when you stop and think about it, I am not disheartened with us. I am not disheartened with me. Sometimes I'm embarrassed by my lack of love. But I am not disheartened by my lack of love because I can recognize I'm missing some things that Jesus had. But I was made for this. You were made for this, which means there has to be a way in which we can experience the Jesus effect and then be the Jesus effect. And it isn't going to include self-reliance and pulling up your bootstraps and finding a way to mutter under your breath instead of telling that person what you think about him. This is not the Jesus effect. Shoving all of your angst into your belly is not the Jesus effect. Like there has to be a way, something that we're missing that is causing the Jesus effect to be missed in our slice of history. And I'd like to talk about that. And I'll just tell you right up front today, specifically, we're going to talk about the Jesus effect changes what I see. That is part of this puzzle is it changes what I see. So uh, I want to tell you a story out of the Bible, and it's kind of long, so I'm just going to tell you the story. But uh, Jesus was out when he was alive, was approached by a pastor, and the pastor said, hey, okay, you tell me, you claim to be the Son of God, you tell me, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus infuriatingly answers a question with a question. Well, what does your Bible say? I mean, it's a pastor, so you know your Bible. Like, hey, what does your Bible say? And the pastor says, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, right. Still not really answering the guy's question, which is just infuriating. Like, if I was like, come on. And then the pastor tries to like, come on, Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell a story about two uh, mutually hated communities. Not quite like Romeo and Juliet, Capulet and Montagues, more like one community had people split off from their community. And when they did, this community decided that they were superior and these people were less than. And so these few people felt shunned and disdained, and therefore they disdained back. And these people felt like they had been rejected, I think, which is probably why they were flinging the proverbial arrows back and forth. And he tells a story of a man that was brutally hurt from the superior community, and two different people from his community came across him while he is dying on the ground and did nothing, walked around. And in fact, it implies that they like ewed and walked around. And then somebody from the inferior, considered inferior community, the marginalized community, came across this injured man and actually helped him, self-sacrificially helped him, and beyond what you would have expected even from people in his own community. And then the pastor, and then uh, Jesus says, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who had been attacked by bandits? And the pastor gets the answer right. It's the guy that helped Jesus tells this story for the purposes of saying, your neighbor is not who you think. I see something in people that you are missing. 
I want you to see that thing with me. So the thing that I think that Jesus sees that he would like us to see is he sees the we. So the Jesus effect is seeing the we. And I'd like to draw a little chart that might be slightly uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable drawing it, not because it's a tough drawing, but because it's kind of uncomfortable to me as I process this story. For those of you that grew up in the church, that story is the story of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard that story before. But I think the thing that Jesus was trying to teach that contemporary, his contemporary pastor friend is still the same lesson that I think we need to learn. So I'd like to draw this chart because here's what I think Jesus sees. Whatever, it's my opinion and we're all just going to wrestle with it together. But I believe that Jesus sees us as God is together with everyone. Just going to shorten that. And with me. And this right here is the we. I'm sorry for you on this side. I'm right-handed, so you're, you're out of luck. This is the we that God has said all the way through the pages of the Bible. I am pitching my tent with you. I am pitching my tent with you. And all the way through every single type of people group, God says, you and I, we're in this together. Every single type of people group. He says, I'm pitching my tent with you. That is everyone, because he just repeated it over and over. There was nobody that he excluded. And I'm included in the we. I am included in the we. Here's the thing. God, bless his heart, can actually see inside of people's hearts. God can see the whole 360-degree picture. I think what happens to us, though, is as we walk through life... We picture ourselves at different points out here. And different ones of us, for different reasons, picture ourselves out here. This is still the we that God intended. But let's say I disagree with your parenting style. Well, I wouldn't parent like that might be a thought that I have. Bloop, I'm out. Instead of being part of the we, I have extricated myself in some way, shape, or form. Um, I might camp up. So, so you know what I mean by camps? When we look around our society, we see people clumping up in camps. This is a certain political camp. This is a certain style of parenting camp. This is a gender camp. This is like, we have these camps that we camp up into. I love, that's why I like Jesus, the idea of Jesus or God pitching his tent with everybody. Every single people group, every single alignment. God says the sinner, I'm camped up with them. We get this idea that we are inside certain camps and outside of certain camps. And we pop out. And I believe that when we do this, even though God is with us, he said, I'm pitching my tent with you. When we do this, when we find a way to isolate from other people in the name of, I don't believe the same thing that you do, or I wouldn't act that way, or I wouldn't make those choices, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. When we pull ourselves away from the we, we inevitably pull ourselves away from a picture of God and from the presence of God. Now, God comes with this. This is an uncomfortable principle. God comes with us because he's pitching his tent with us. He's in our camp. But one of the reasons I believe our camps are getting so fierce these days is because we were meant, we were always meant to live in this we. We were always meant to be connected to the humanity of the other people, 
whether we know them or we don't know them, whether we know their backstory and can give them grace because of that, it doesn't matter. We were always meant to live as part of this we. And when we choose to view people in such a way that separates us from the we, it does damage to us. It does damage around us. And because we want to belong, I think this is one of the reasons why our camps are getting so fierce. We want to belong. When we step out of this, we're desperate to find other people that agree with us in our camps. We're desperate to bring them around ourselves because we have stepped out of the original we. I think it's why our camps are getting so fierce. Even inside of the church, we find ourselves camping up. It's so dangerous. I ran across this quote on a website called ProGrace.org. Like, oh, what a name. Like, I'm for grace. I love that. So the guy that said it is Tyler Johnson, and it's kind of long, but I think it speaks to this beautifully. For many people, if you don't mind, thank you. For many people, the center of their universe is based on right and wrong. Even our current political discourse is about who's right and who's wrong. If that's the center of the universe, then the only outcome to that is to constantly be asking or living in fear and anxious, am I right or wrong? That is this principle. I don't think you're right. I'm popping over here. I'm right. Now I'm constantly wondering. So I'm looking for other people to join me in this idea. If the Bible is true which I believe it is, if the Bible is true, love is actually at the center of the universe. Jesus, love sits over right and wrong. Right and wrong are massively important, but they sit under love. For us, this is the definition of right and wrong. We camp up based on these ideas, but for Jesus, he sees the we. All the time, he sees the we. In Galatians, it says this. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those were some of the bigger camps of the day. The way that men and women were treated was fundamentally different. The way that slaves versus free people were treated was fundamentally different. They, the, the community that the Bible was written towards were defined by their heritage, their Jewish heritage, and they saw Gentiles as something wholly other. These were the big camps of the day, and he's tearing them all down. And originally, I saw this as, well, okay, inside the church, we shouldn't have any camps. Like, we're all one inside of the church. But I don't think that is the picture that the Bible paints. In Matthew, uh, this is Jesus's, bless you, this is Jesus's words um, himself. I, Jesus, tell you the truth. Just as you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. The, the story that he told before he said that was filled with um, stories of people that had done simple things, given a, a coat off of their back to somebody, given a drink of water, shared a meal. But the people group that he told the stories about, it was people that, the, that we would be uncomfortable with. It was prisoners. It was unclean people. It was deathly ill people. It was people groups that we generally don't associate ourselves with. And he said, no, listen, we're all one. It wasn't about Christian or non-Christian. It was about we're all one. The Jesus effect is this thing when he says there's no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That is the Jesus effect. It's not faith-filled or non-faith. It's not religious or non-religious. It's not, there's no camps. 
The camps are actually imaginary. In fact, I think Jesus would say, we define the we. Will we define ourselves by the various camps that we are involved in? Or will we define the we the same way that Jesus defined the we? I think Jesus is calling us to see the we differently. I love this idea. I've told you many times my love, oh, nature. I just see God written all over nature. When I was praying about this concept, I just could not shake loose the idea that we are an ecosystem. As humanity, we're an ecosystem. We are interconnected and interwoven, and there is nothing that happens to you that does not affect me. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people. I think it goes even beyond that. I don't disagree with that whatsoever. When you, there's a Jimmy Dean, I think it's Jimmy Dean sausage. Oh, they failed at their marketing if I don't know the name of that. There is a commercial. Oh, there's a commercial where somebody starts their morning with this wonderful breakfast sandwich that they heated up in the microwave and a little sunshine goes over their head as they are warm and well-fed. And then they walk outside and it's raining and they have an umbrella and then you see someone without an umbrella and then they share their umbrella and now the little sunshine is over two people's heads. And then that person, it's like pay it forward concept. That's an ecosystem. Like, If I am treated poorly, the chances of me interacting with you at my best self is not that great. If I dilute that pain over to you, the chances of you interacting with the next person are not that great. But I would say it goes one step further than that. When I opt to view myself as better, and I'm going to say that, I think when we choose this path, we choose to think we are better because we believe better or we act better. I believe this is a a superior inferiority thing happening. When I choose to view you that way, I believe I lose respect in myself. It does not feel good. I know you've had conversations where you were not your best self and you walk away and there is some loss of respect. There is some degree of forgiveness that needs to happen. I think not only does this come down to our behavior with each other, But I actually think when we choose to distance ourselves from other people groups, when we choose to view other people as not as good as us because they are acting or believing differently than we are, that something breaks inside of us too because we were made to see the we that God sees because we want to be the Rachel Beckwiths. Because we want to have a lasting impact and we all sense that the thing we want to do in some way, shape, or form is about blessing other people. If you take our hopes and dreams back to their core, we want to bless other people. We are an ecosystem and what is happening inside of me, what is happening outside of me, what is happening to you around me affects the we. I'd like to read you one other thing that Jesus said. It's in John Uh, to this point about we are one. He was praying and he said, Father, I'm coming to you, but my followers are still in the world, so keep them safe by the power of the name you've given me. Then they will be one with each other just as you and I are one. And for me, when I read that, I think, again, the church. Let the church be one. 
that would be a good place to start. If inside the church, if we were winning there, we could, we could celebrate that. We're not winning there yet either. We, I thought this applied to people inside of a church context attempting to have the Jesus effect happen to them and happen through them. But he actually goes on. I'm not praying just for my followers. I'm praying for everyone else that will have faith because of what my followers will say about me. I want all of them to be one with each other. I don't think the we is the Christian camp or the non-Christian camp. I think that Jesus would say to us, the we is everybody. What do we need to do to see the we? I think if you pull back and look at it, we are generally in agreement on what the problems are. We generally can see that people should have access to clean water. We generally could see people should treat each other well. We generally can agree that everybody should treat children well. We generally agree, like the, the problems, we're in general, we're in agreement on the problems. But I think maybe that we're approaching the right problems with the wrong solutions. And I believe that the right problems demand the right solution. And I believe that the Jesus effect, love, is that solution. I would challenge you this week. I don't know what you're picturing in your head when you picture the problems that you are the most passionate about, that you are most likely to feel at odds with other people who are approaching that problem from a different place. I don't know what those things are for you. But I would challenge you that I think Jesus would say the solution is love. We can all agree hate is not going to solve a lack of love. Right? If we look over and we see something happening to somebody, a bullying situation, if we look over and we see a lack of love, hate on my part is not going to solve it. But isn't that how we internally respond most often? Let's just take that bullying example. Here is a, somebody being bullied, maybe a coworker, or maybe it's a kid. Somebody is being bullied. Our natural response, it feels like the natural response for us is hate the bully, to feel angst towards the bully. But in this context, whew, the bully is as much in my camp, is part of my ecosystem, is part of the person that I am challenged to correct a lack of love with love. We know hate won't fix it. Camps aren't going to fix it. If camps were going to work, we would have... <laughs> right? Like, we would have seen it work already. Camps are not going to correct a lack of love. And I would say rights are not going to correct a lack of love. I could be completely right in my desire to distance myself from your particular belief structure or whatever. I, I might be right in what I believe. You might be wrong in what you believe. But it's not going to correct the lack of love that we see in our world. Only love corrects a lack of love. It doesn't, if you are vitamin C deficient, I don't care how much vitamin D I give you, it's not fixing it. Right? Love corrects a lack of love. Friends, I think Jesus is calling us as a community, as a community, and I don't know if I mean community of the people that come to this church or community of Petaluma or community of Sonoma County or community, like, you can name that community. We get to define the we. I believe God is calling us to the cutting edge of love, to the places where I would be uncomfortable 
because it feels like in some way, shape, or form, my love might be condoning something that I don't agree with. Jesus was regularly accused of having no faith at all because of the people that he chose to love. Radical acceptance of people that he radically disagreed with. He was regularly accused. Am I game to put my reputation on the line to love somebody that you might think, Ange, what are you doing? You're condoning something you shouldn't be doing. Am I game to put my reputation on the line? Am I willing to step out into the cutting edge of love and put my own comfort into discomfort on behalf of that? Dude, I think Jesus is whispering, let's do this. Let's do this. That effect that lasted 2,000 years, his reputation that has gone on for 2,000 years, that's a pretty powerful effect. I want to leave a legacy. I know you want to leave a legacy. We want to have an effect. And the Jesus effect is a beautiful one that we were all hardwired to do. I believe one of the key pieces we could do is to change the way we see the we. So I don't know if there's any piece of you that as I say that is thinking, okay, I gotta love more. I don't, can you picture my boots? They've got like a, I clearly have a mental picture in my head of boots that come up to here and they have those handles on the side and you like grab the handle and you yank them up. I don't know if as we go along, if you're like, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to be loving more. Pish posh to that. Like pish posh to the shoulds. Here is the hope that Jesus offers. This is not up to you. This is called the Jesus effect. It's not called the Angela effect. Like, I was very nervous about having this conversation together with us this morning. And I had to remind myself, it's not my job. It's not my job to move you to want to change what you see. It's my job to share you what I've been, share with you what I've been praying about, what Jesus is encouraging me towards, what I see in our society is so needed. That's my job. It is Jesus's job to turn it into something, to let it have some momentum gain, to, to have it move you in some way. Same thing with our love. If we walk out this door and it's like, okay, I will stop hating the other drivers who drive super slow in the left lane. <laughs> that That is self-confession right there, which is now one of those things I will have to look at this week. <laughs> This is not the appropriate response. Guilt is not going to correct the lack of love. Shoulds are not going to correct the lack of love. The title of the series is the thing that we need. The Jesus effect. And I am proposing that the Jesus effect can change the, the we that we see. So as we walk out the door this morning... Please no bootstrap pulling up. Please no shooting yourself into a position where you feel trapped to love someone that you actually need to, to process. All I would say is let's ask ourselves a question. And I think it is the question that Jesus was telling that pastor to ask. Do you remember the children's book, Are You My Mother? I loved that book. I love that. It's a little bird falls out of a nest, which is tragic, and then starts wandering around asking everyone that he sees, are you my mother? Are you my mother? And it all turns out fine. He finds his mother. 
I feel like instead of trying to solve the whole world's problems, instead of trying to rewrite 2,000 years of Christian history, instead of trying to fix this lack of love with big, grandiose gestures or any kind of guilt-ridden behavior, I wonder if we just asked ourselves, are you my neighbor? Right? Jesus' story was everybody's your neighbor. Everybody's your neighbor. What if this week, rather than trying to make love happen, mm, that was kind of a dangerous sentence. (laughs) What if instead of that, what if we just had ordinary conversations with God about who the we is? What if as I am like, trying not to tailgate the person in the left lane who is going probably the speed limit, you guys. They're probably going the speed limit. (laughs) What if in that moment I just asked, how is this person my neighbor? Because we feel at odds right now. I don't even know them, but I know some things about their value system. Like, come on. Like, we slap assumptions all the time. What if this week all we did is say, all right, God, when I feel that angsty, and for me, it's like right here. I don't know where your angst is. But when I feel that angst that has somebody's face on it, it's always right here. I was going to ask myself, where's the we? Are you my neighbor? That's it. What if we just asked Jesus to have an effect on what we see? Could he change the we that we see? Would you do that this week? Which I I see nodding heads. That's encouraging. Like, what if God could call us out to the cutting edge of love just by asking, are you my neighbor? Neighbors and friends, I'm all done. Diva. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.